If you've got a Bible or an app on your phone or you want to play Angry Birds, now is your chance. Um, just get out your, your phone or your Bible and flick it to Mark chapter 9, if you would. It's on the right-hand side of the Bible, one of the Gospels. I'm going from verse 2. It says this, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, white than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do, you, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about. I didn't grow up going to church whatsoever, uh, not at all. In fact, my only frame of reference for Jesus was the film Sister Act 1 and 2. And, and for a long time, I, 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 I love those films. And when I met Christians who were quite happy or seemed to enjoy church, I totally expected that that was their expression of worship and church life, that they just sung kind of gospel versions of pop songs. Um, and then all throughout my upbringing, I didn't go to church whatsoever. When I was two, my parents divorced, and I lived on uh, what would be called now an urban-derived area. Um, to us, it was just the estate. Uh, I grew up um, in this block of flats, and our biggest move was moving from upstairs to downstairs. We'd get a garden one day. Um, and, but life was chaotic. My, my dad worked three jobs. One of them was a butcher, and the other, he was a meat packer. And then the third job he did was delivering cereal samples around people's houses, as if that's even a job. But that's what he did, and, and, and for years and years, that's kind of what we did. And I, I, was, I was the kid that would go out and, and run about on the estate from the age of about five and just hang out around there. And then when I was 10, my dad um, got remarried and um, married this woman who's, who's now my stepmom, and they had three kids. But life was super chaotic. We didn't really know what to do financially, money-wise, so that life was always a bit of a struggle. When I was 12, my brother, who was like my role model or my partner in crime, moved to London to live with my mum. And, um, and then when I was 14, I also, life got really tough at home and, and I just decided to leave home when I was 14. So I jumped on a train and hid in the toilet and went from one end of the, uh, the line all the way up to London to land um, in London. I then scooted under the barrier at the time where people weren't as vigilant as they are these days um, and got on a tube all the way to my mum's house. My mum worked nights, and so she came home 7 a.m. to find me curled up on her doorstep, thinking, what are you doing here? Um, but I didn't realize until that moment that actually my mum was an alcoholic, and by this point, my brother had got big into the, the rave scene. I don't know if you remember that, Jungle and Drum and Bass. He was a pirate radio station DJ for Erotic FM, and, um, and life was just chaotic. There's all kinds of stuff going on at home. Our home was the house you could hear five streets away as you're kind of going home at night. And then I joined this school. And I joined the one school that would take a child that didn't have any records because they'd run away from home, um, which was a school that had a police station built into it because they had so many call-outs that it was just 
save the petrol expense, let's move the police station into the school. So it was strange. It was interesting. But I met these three Christians. One got the school bus every, every day with me on the way to school. And every single Monday, he would ask me the question, how was your weekend? Not because he was that interested in my weekend, but because I was British, I would have to return the favor and say, well, how was yours? And he would say, well, Sunday, Sunday, you should hear my pastor preach. And he would then tell me the entire sermon that his pastor had preached. But he was a great guy and, and, and just every day would sit next to me on the bus, really nice guy. The second person I met who was a Christian was my science teacher. And Mrs. Pern, um, at one point, I got in a bit of a, uh, a kerfuffle in a science class. And I was about to bring a, a, a stool, one of those high science stools, onto another pupil's head. He deserved it, in my opinion. But um, Mrs. Pern came from behind me, removed the chair from my grasp, and took me into her office and said, I should exclude you. We have a zero tolerance policy for violent behavior. But um, I know there's something else going on. So you've got a choice. Either you leave the school today or you meet me every single week uh, to chat about what's going on at home. Uh, so I had no idea she was a Christian at this point. But I started to realize then what grace might look like, what undeserved love what might look like. And then there's this other girl who I met who was very, very pretty. And she was the kid, and every, uh, every school has one, who whenever they get a new boy in class, they're the ones to take them around the school and introduce them to all the things. Like, this is where the first aid room is. This is where the next class is. And I clocked her in my first lesson. And she approached me because she was told to. Um, and she said to me, can I take you to your next lesson? And I said, the coolest line, if you're single, take this one down. I said, no, I'll find my own way, thanks. And just walked in the other direction. And I thought I was playing it cool. She thought I was a Muppet. And um, <laughs> so I then went um, eventually to the class. I rocked up 10 minutes late. Um, but I started to, we started to hang out. She was a good friend. And she would go to the same house parties that I would go to, where Sean Paul is blazing in the, in the speakers. And, but she wouldn't be doing the same things that I was doing. She would be helping her friends out when they were puking in the toilets. And she would be, um, be really lovely around there, whereas everyone else was getting up to all kinds of shenanigans. And I started to unpick um, and ask her questions about her faith. I knew she went to a, a youth church, which I didn't even know what that was. Um, and, and then I was in a pub, age 15, with my brother having a pint of Stella. And in came a guy selling illegal DVDs. Do you remember those before the download button? Yeah, yeah, you got them. Um, but the, a guy came in selling illegal DVDs. And I went through his collection and for a fiver, picked up a copy of what I thought had everything I like about a film. It was kind of gory. It had subtitles, so I felt cultured while watching it. And it was, um, but it was also historical. And five pounds later, I was a proud new owner of the dodgiest copy of The Passion of the Christ. And I, I took it home, this awful copy that had clearly been videoed on someone's phone. And there was a guy walking past with popcorn. And, and it was, you had to squint to see the subtitles clearly. But I watched this film, The Passion of the Christ. And I was completely compelled all my other experience of Jesus before then, whether it's Sister Act or whether it's just little bits of conversation from other Christians, had paled in comparison to this Jewish rabbi who happened to welcome people around him who were the not-sorted ones, the unholy types, the ones who were getting up to no good during the week. And, and, and suddenly I saw in this film the people around him who were full of doubt, full of, um, full of pain, full of suffering, bringing that stuff and still being welcomed around Jesus' table. And that week, this girl who went to the house parties, she invited me to church. And I said, because I was a teenager, you know what I mean? And I went. 
I was so nervous that first Sunday, and I'm sure none of you would be experiencing the same thing, especially not at 10.48, but I got hammered drunk and just stood at the back of church. I was so nervous as to what I was to expect, and I just kind of swayed in the background. Because the music was on, no one noticed. I just kind of bled in. But the thing is, is I went week by week, and I was loved into the community, and the pastor would take me for coffee and answer my questions and allow me to mess up and, and work me back in again. And the thing is, I was compelled by was Jesus, for each one of us, at some point in our lives, whether it's your first time at church today or your millionth time, at some point the question is asked, is Jesus who he says he is? If he is, the world changes. If he's not, why are we even here? Let's go and watch Match of the Day. It's far more entertaining sometimes. But is Jesus who he says he is? And today in our reading... Peter, one of the three, he takes up this mountain. Shortly before this episode, he's asking that exact same question. He said, who do you say I am? And Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, says, you are the Messiah, which is Hebrew Jewish talk for you're the one we've all been waiting for to bring about the restoration of everything. I find that in you, a 33-year-old rabbi walking about Galilee. You are the person we've all been waiting for. Who do you say I am? So in our reading, Jesus takes his three closest mates up a mountain, Mount Tabor, which is about half the size of Snowdon. If you've been up Snowdon, it's about half the size of that. And they take him up this mountain. And Jesus' whole appearance is transformed in front of their very eyes. But that's not the only weird thing about it. He's also joined by two dead guys, Moses and Elijah. What is that about? Now, either the Bible writers are lying, in which case we might as well put it all down, or they're telling the truth, in which case this changes everything. Now, Moses, for all Jewish people, um, was called uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, which means Moses, the greatest rabbi, the rabbi we've all been waiting for, the rabbi that even though he is dead, we still um, listen to his teaching, we still live by his teaching. He embodies everything that the Jewish people would call the law, which was the covenant they had with God, the stuff that makes them fully alive. He is the embodiment of that. And so in every synagogue, you have what's called the uh, the seat of Moses, which is where the teacher would sit down as they would give their sermon, as they give their lecture. Moses, the embodiment of the law. And then he's also joined by Elijah. Now, Elijah, every Jewish house, whether you're doing a circumcision or you're celebrating the Passover, you would have an empty chair. Because Elijah brings about, um, his, his coming brings about the end of the world. And so what you would do is you'd have an empty chair just in case your circumcision, not your person, but a circumcision, or your Passover meal is going to be the last one that will bring about the restoration of all things. And so then Jesus is joined by these guys. So the Bible writers are saying something very clear, that Jesus isn't simply a good moral teacher. He's not simply just a wise guy. He's not simply just another prophet. He's not simply just another miracle maker. He is the embodiment of all that we're going to teach and all that we're going to learn from. And he's also the embodiment of all things that are going to come to pass, all the world coming to restoration fully through the work of this one, Jesus. It makes a difference who we say Jesus is. Either he's just a good moral teacher, and in which case, what's the point? Let's go home. Or he's someone completely 
different that changes your whole world, changes our world. And the thing is, is that the pennies drop for the disciples. But one of them suddenly says, well, let's tent it up. Let's get our tents out. It's focused. Let's have a hoedown. Let, I'm going to set up three tents. I've just gone down to Sport Direct and got three one-man tents. Let's set that all up and we can all have this moment together. And the thing is, each one of us might have had a spiritual encounter. We might have met with Jesus in some special way. Some of us might be here this morning because we're praying that this is the moment. And the temptation is to bottle it up, to capture it somehow, to put it on our Instagram and, and hopefully one day it will, um, we'll be able to recreate it. And when I first became a Christian, I remember the first time I encountered the Holy Spirit. And all I mean by that is I, I, as I prayed, I felt the sensation in my belly that I was loved, that I was known. It felt quite like pins and needles, but just in my stomach. And I mean, sometimes I get pins and needles in my stomach because exercise is difficult, but it was the different kind of pins and needles. And the thing is, is that what I then did is I tried to recreate it. So I went to Wesley Owen. Do you remember Wesley Owen, the old Christian bookstore? And I bought all the CDs and I bought all the books. And I, at home, I tried to recreate it. So I got fairy lights out. I got tea lights out. And I, I put on Graham Kendrick or Matt Redman, whoever it was, and just tried to recreate the moment. Because you want to do that. But that is not the job of the church. The job of the church is not to contain holiness. It's not to contain wonder. It's not to contain glory. It's not to keep these special moments for ourselves but to pour it out, to give it out to the world, to send it out, to go empowered, glorified as disciples and take it out down the mountains, into the valleys, into people's real life. And then there's this amazing moment where in the busyness, as, as Peter's trying to set up these tents, where the cloud, out of the cloud comes this voice of our heavenly Father, and if you are a father, or you long to be, or you look after people in a fathering role, this is the best advice you could ever encounter throughout the entirety of Scripture. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. The thing is, if we're in a parenting role, whether we're mentoring people or whatever we're doing, the advice of the world is meaningless. Our job is not to become like gods to the people we look after but it's to point them to the one who we're meant to listen to. That is to point them to Jesus, who will, who will give all, every, every element, will give all into all the need that humanity is longing for. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And in the book of Colossians, it says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus. So in this moment, God the Father is saying, that you're totally right. He is the embodiment of all the law. He is the embodiment of all the prophets. He is the embodiment of all restoration coming to be known in this flesh that we're calling Jesus while he's on this earth. But he is everything that you're meant to orientate your life around. Listen to him. And the thing is, I think sometimes Jesus is my business, but he's not my life. Sometimes Jesus is my conservatory, but he's not the house in which I inhabit. He's the add-on, but he's not the thing. He's an extra bolt-on package, but he's not the, the full operating system. That sometimes Jesus is my hobby, but he's not everything I am. And I wonder for some of us today, we might, have been, we might have been filling pews all our life, but is Jesus everything, or is he just your Sunday and your Wednesday and your Tuesday night entertainment? Is he just a thing that makes you feel a bit holier? Is he just a thing that makes you feel a bit worthier? Is he just a thing that's bringing a, bringing some, um, bringing a, bringing a, a peace into the deficit that is in our life? Or is he everything? Are we orientating our whole life around this one? Listen to him.
And I remember when I first became a Christian, I would go home after church on a Sunday night, and there would often be the sound of drum and bass as I was coming up the house. And I just knew that what's welcoming me is not the same as the Matt Redman, Tim Hughes tunes that I just left. And I'd get home, and, and the, the smell of some substances would, would flow over. Um, and I'd go in, and I'd lock myself in my room, and, and I'd just kind of pour over this, old, uh, this New Testament and Psalms, Gideon's Bible that I'd once acquired in an assembly. And the thing is, is life was difficult to match up my Monday to Saturday life because life was so chaotic at home. And it was easier to just fit in with everything else that's going on. It was easier just to, just to kind of mess around and do all that stuff. But I became really, really good at church activity. So I knew when to nod at the pastor. I knew when to say amen. I knew when to raise my hands in worship at the chorus and the bridge every time. I knew, I knew even how to do a Bible study. I, I knew how to play four chords so I could lead worship pretty good. And, and the thing is, I got really good at the language of church. But actually, in the secret place, in the quiet place, in all the other places, apart from church activity, I was an absolute ragamuffin. And so I remember about two years in, I'd had a really heavy night because it was a mate's 18th birthday. And um, I had what you don't want to see on a Sunday morning uh, when you've had a heavy night the night before. My alarm went off and it just said, Alex leading worship. My name is Alex. That meant that I was meant to lead worship. I'd completely forgotten. I was still wearing the clothes from the night before. I was still smelling like the drinks from the night before. So I grabbed my guitar. I ran down the road, kind of still not really with it. And, but I was so late that the band had started rehearsing, started practicing. And I walked through the doors. And I remember the song clearly as day. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. And at that moment, I just dropped the guitar, said to the vicar, I can't do it. Can I realize in that moment that I was saved not by my activity. I was saved not because of my behavior. I was saved not because I had earned something or I was now worthy of being in the Jesus club. But I was saved completely by grace, which means my life now is not governed by the old patterns. Now I'm not, I'm not duty bound to living a different life. But when you know that the stuff that you're saved into is purely a gift of grace, you don't want to do anything but. You don't want to do anything but. And I remember the sermon that day, the guy gave a talk and his talk was called, you're the son of a king, now act like it. And I wonder for some of us this morning, whether we're thinking, we've been at church loads. You're the daughter of a king. You're the son of a king. Are you acting like it? Or is it just a hobby? Is this Christian thing just something that we rock up at? And I think the mark of discipleship, the thing, um, the thing that calls us out as a Christian community is not how active are we or how busy are we, but are we listening to Jesus? Because that's the one command in this mountaintop moment that God the Father gives his disciples. This is my son. This is my boy. Listen to him. Are we good at listening to Jesus? The thing is, we don't need a building to do that, right? We don't need a structure around it. We don't need an institution around it to listen to Jesus. There are four ways, I think, the Bible gives us a pretty clear understanding of how we listen to Jesus. The first is through the Word of God. How good are we at picking it up? Sometimes it's heavy. Sometimes it's an inconvenience. Sometimes it's, it's not as important as loading the dishwasher. Sometimes it's not as pressing as that business commitment. But how good are we at sitting and reading the word of God, listening to the words of Jesus? If I could get a pound for every time someone says to me, as a pastor, I really wish God was speaking to me. And my response to them is like, when was the last time you read the Bible? Because it's all in there. 
And the thing is, is so often we're, we're longing for something. We're longing for a mountaintop moment when actually it's, it's here. It's here. It's come down. We have the words written on paper. The second way we hear Jesus is in the church community. Our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we're the body of Christ, then as we talk to one another, then hopefully that should be something of the body of Christ moving. So Christ's words in at play. But we know from the letters that we find in the Bible that sometimes we're not very good at it. But Jesus says, this is how the world will know you're my disciples. By the way you have activity with one. No, no, by the way you do stuff to get the course. No, by the way you have love for one another. So are we good at this? If you're new to church today, then, then I, I promise you that this could be the, the most loving community you've ever been part of. And it should be. The person on your left or your right might be a godparent to you one day. It might be an uncle or an auntie one day. You might be welcomed into this spiritual family. And actually your whole view of family is transformed because of this moment. And if you've been coming for years and years and years, then that's our responsibility, to love one another. But not for the sake of feeling good, but because the world needs to know who we are and who we listen to. The third way, Jesus says that whether, 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 where there is poor, where there is poverty, where there is hurting, where there is need, where there is lack, there I am. How do we know we've served Jesus? By how we've clothed the naked by how we fed the hungry, by how we visited the prisoners, by how we've looked after the poor. And so how are we, good at, are we good at doing that? Are we listening to Jesus because we're close to those who are in need? And fourthly, no longer do we have to go up mountaintops to encounter God's glory. But because of Pentecost, because of the stuff we talked about just last week, the Spirit now comes down. No longer do we need to go up mountains to encounter and have these amazing moments. But the, Pen the Pentecost moment is the Spirit of God now makes his dwelling place in you, in your heart. Your body is a temple, is a place of worship for the Holy Spirit to be at work. Are we listening to Jesus? And there's this really interesting bit that after this episode, as they're walking down the mountain... Jesus says to them all, please don't tell anyone. Please don't tell anyone until I have risen from the dead. And I think the problem with the Western church is we've taken the first half of that commandment really well. We've listened to that. We've, we've hung on to that. We've bound that to our foreheads. We've kept it above our, our doorposts and we've discipled our children into that. Do not tell anyone. Just don't. Your faith is private. Your faith is a secret. You're weird. You're strange. Don't tell anyone. They'll get weirded out. We're really good at that bit. But there's a clause to that. Until I've been risen from the dead. If you're a Christian that believes in the resurrection, not all Christians do, but if you're one of them, then we need to keep the first bit true as well. That actually there's no such thing as a private faith. No such thing. That's a heresy. That means it's wrong. There's no such thing. Your faith has huge impact on people. Even if you bottle it up, that means there is a huge impact going on around how people view faith, how people view your own personal relationship with Jesus, that actually it's secret, it's weird, and it's kind of dirty and odd. But if you share it, if you pour it out, if you come down from the mountaintop, you, you, you put down the tents and, 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 and place your tents in the valley and start to share your faith, start to transform the areas that you're in touch with, then people's view of the church change dramatically. Oh, you're not some weird, out-of-date thing. You actually have something to say to my work in life, to my family life. And on Father's Day and on Mother's Day and those kind of days, I think the church has something really valid to say. 
that we're not simply a club of people who've got nothing better to do on a Sunday. But we are family, that our family not just called to have private barbecues, but to go out into the village greens and the town centers and have our barbecues there. And say to people, you are so welcome into this community, because without you, I won't know what the Spirit of God is doing. I won't know what the Spirit of God is doing. I won't be able to listen to Jesus unless I'm in touch with those who are lacking today. Because of Pentecost, no longer do we need to go up mountains, but we ourselves can also be transfigured, transformed into dazzling beauty because the Holy Spirit comes down and we have a choice. We can either boil it up, we can either hide our light under a bowl, or we can shine like stars. In Philippians says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purposes. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe, as you hold out the word of life. In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. So how good are we at listening to Jesus? Are we going to bottle up all that we get in the four walls of our church? Or are we going to pour it out? And are we going to be a community known for how much love we have one another? And are we going to be a community known for loving those who are outside these walls, who are yet to know the grace that they have been saved by? That stuff can set the world on fire. 